Welcome to the Filling the Pale podcast. My name is Greg Ashman and my special guest for this episode is Doug Lamarve. Now, welcome, Doug. Thanks for having me on, Greg. Glad to be here. Um, you've been a teacher, school principal, researcher, many other things. Um, hmm. Have you're perhaps best known internationally for your book, Teach Like a Champion and Teach Like a Champion 2. Um, can you tell me about the genesis of that book? Hmm. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, well, I didn't really realize that I was writing a book when I started writing the book. <laughs> and I didn't really believe it was going to happen until it was finally in print. But uh, so I was originally a teacher. Um, and then I went to graduate school in English because I thought I wanted to be a professor of English. And uh, I decided not to do that. And I started at some point a charter school with some, with some people in Boston. Uh, and it was, it was incredibly challenging work. And I was both, I was both a, a teacher and a, and a low level administrator as the Dean of Students, which is like, that's the person you get sent to if you behave poorly. Right. And, Great job. And, yeah. <laughs> Actually, secretly, I, I loved it. I really did. I love it. And I'm still friends today with some of the students. Like there's, a, there's one young man who was in my office practically every single day those first couple of years in that school. Yeah. Um, and he ultimately was very successful, went to college, became a teacher. We're very, you know, we're like, we're friends now. Uh, and so, uh, that, that part of the job, the Dean of Students job was incredibly challenging, but, uh, but it's my favorite part of the job. And, and I think we're in many ways, I learned the most. Um, but anyway, so I uh, became a principal of the school that I had founded. It was 1997. At this point, the woman who founded the school called me into her office one day and said, um, guess what, <laughs> the financing for my, my dream of building an information management system based on the pilot version that I built for the school has come in, I'm going to Silicon Valley and I'm gonna, gonna see where this thing goes. Wow. And you're in charge. And ah. I literally remember looking, looking behind me to see if it was someone <laughs> else she was talking to. Um, anyway, so uh, I ran the school and it was very, it was, it was successful in large part because of the brilliant teachers that were around me and the sort of collective model of leadership that we developed because our presumption was, you know, like who is the person who has all the answers to the incredible challenge of running a high performing school in communities of need? And the answer is no one, yeah. uh, only groups of people have that kind of insight. Uh, but then, so I went to business school and I, uh, and I, because I just wanted to, to learn what it took to run an organization that did schools like this at scale. And it came out and I was lucky to uh, uh, start working with a bunch of people who wanted to build similar schools. And we just found that over and over we would, we would hire these really talented, smart young people who were driven and wanted to make a difference in the world. And they would go into the classrooms and they would come back and they would say, what do you do when? Yeah. And the when was all sorts of things. It was, what do you do when a uh, student tries, you have a student and she tries so hard and she just doesn't seem to understand anything. Yeah. She's reading in the text. She can decode it perfectly. She doesn't understand it at all. What do you do when uh, there's a student who just wants to pull his hoodie over his head and be left alone and he doesn't bother anyone, but he won't try at all. Yeah. What do you do when you walk into the classroom and you say, okay, let's sit down and get started, please. And someone says, do you sit down? Uh, like there were, there were a thousand questions yeah. that we simply couldn't answer. And that the, the texts that we read in, you know, in graduate school studies of education didn't answer. And I, I just remember being torn up by the fact that people deserved answers to these questions if they were going to get this work. So 
I, like I said, I was recovering from an MBA at the time and I kind of built this bootstrap regression analysis where I was like, okay, so there are schools out there where, where kid, there are kids that are with classrooms full of kids living in poverty and they still get tremendous results. Yeah. And I'm going to go find them and sneak into them. And, and charter schools are the people who would let me in to observe, <laughs> to observe yeah. and where the data was available. And suddenly I started to see these incredibly beautiful things that these teachers would do. And part of me thought no one will believe this if I don't videotape it. And so I videotaped it. And ultimately this kind of became Teach Like a Champion. While this was happening, I ended up founding a common schools with a group of people and founding a bunch of schools, particularly ones in upstate New York where I live. But ultimately, um, you know, Teach Like a Champion just became big enough that uh, I had to choose between running schools and doing teacher training and studying the craft of teachers. And that was a really hard decision. We can talk about it more, but anyway, ultimately now what I do is study teachers for a living and try and write, uh, you know, try and write books about it and run training for teachers. It's based on the idea of like, well, let's study game film of what actual teachers do in actual classrooms like yours. And I hope honor teachers by deriving the intellectual content of the craft from their actual practice, as opposed to sort of, you know, some theorist somewhere who hasn't been in a classroom in 25 years telling you what you, you know, your classroom should be more democratic. Um, you know, yeah. let's actually look at people. <laughs> let's, let's, let's look at people who, who, who do the work and study them and honor them and, and, um, and drive, you know, drive guidance from there. So that's the short, the short history of Teach Like a Champion. It's interesting what you said there, because you talked about um, what do you do when? And I remember that very much as a as a teacher, and Me I, too. I, and I also took it through when I first, so my journey I, in the UK before I moved to Australia, I was a deputy principal, and I had yeah. to do some uh, behaviour. Well, I didn't have to. I, I volunteered to do some behaviour training, and that was really my focus was what do you do when? And we found a little. I don't think Teach Like a Champion existed at the time. Or it might have done, but I wasn't aware of it. But we found a little pocketbook, which which had as, at least a few. This is what you can do when. And yeah. the reason I felt so keenly that, um, and the reason why books like Teach Like a Champion are so important, early in my career, I didn't have that. And I remember um, as a student teacher in the school that I ended up working in, um, going into the classroom, and we had this system of, uh, they called them student information sheets. So if a kid misbehaved, in order to sort of report the behavior, you filled in this thing called a student information sheet. And this kid was just destroying my lesson and not letting me teach and, you know, wisecracking the whole time and just preventing me from doing what I was. And I said to him, uh, if you carry on, I will have to fill in a, a, an SIS, a student information sheet. And he started going, I'll send an SIS to the world. And he started singing that. And it was a big joke amongst all of them. And I was like, well, I don't know what to do here. I just don't know what to do with you. And um. We had, and I noticed when I got um, when I got your book out, um, I've got Teach Like a Champion one here, and I had a look, and I looked on the back. And You're going to have to upgrade to two. I'm just saying. <laughs> I will do. And there's a, I'm going to send you one. Okay. <laughs> there's an endorsement from Lee Cantor. Now Lee Cantor uh, kind of saved my early career because um, our school brought in this thing called assertive discipline, which he developed, which isn't brilliant, and, and I'm not right. saying you know, but at least it started to answer the question: What do you do if? And it addressed I, the market failure yeah. of like total lack of guidance for teachers on the thing that they struggle with every day. Yeah, absolutely. Any, I mean, can I say like that? This is one of the most fascinating things for me about, I don't perceive Teach Like a Champion to be a book about discipline or behavior. I mean, two out of the 12 chapters in the book are about managing student behavior. Most of it is about like who does the cognitive work and how do you check for understanding? Absolutely. And, 
Um, but I find it ironic that people particularly that I find two things ironic. I find it ironic that for many people, it is a book about behavior management. Yeah. And that suggests to me that like the overwhelming need that it like it, it, it has become that because there's such a dearth of guidance on that, on that topic. And so, um, you know, it, it's one of many things you have to do well to be yeah. a teacher who's, who does right by students. Um, necessary but not sufficient, lots of ways to do it. But it's, a, you know, it's a small piece of the puzzle. But if you ask some people, you know, both, you know, advocates and critics, you know, you might, uh, you might think that it's like, uh, you know, 37 different chapters on how to, well, either help kids learn to sit down or how to control them, depending yeah. on, you know, on your take. But it, it's actually, ironically, it's a small part of the book, but it just it suggests the disservice that happens to teachers, which is they're asked to go out and do incredibly difficult work in incredibly difficult circumstances, uh, again, you know, working with trying to serve the, your young friend who uh, wanted to send your SIS to the world, like really, really brilliant, <laughs> really capable, <laughs> brilliant kids who yeah. uh, take immense pleasure in disrupting the learning of others. And that's, you know, like that's a hard thing to do without any guidance. I, I, I think how much you want to help kids. No one dreams of, you know, of uh, being in front of the class. The classroom shouting at children and telling them to sit down but like people people end up there it's not why they take the job but that they end up there yeah it's it's there's a, there's a, almost a denial about it like um yeah it, it's, it's even a thing when i wrote uh, so oh, I it's wrote a character a flaw in many cases right? if, it, if, <laughs> yeah. if your classroom is disorderly let's you know what have yeah. you done wrong and and so i, I wrote a, a book for new teachers um the truth about teaching and um the main, first main chapter um, so I did a little bit on the history. I'm just looking for my copy because it's over here. So it's over here. So wait a minute. Hold on. You can cut this out if you want to. I just want to show you that. Ah, it's excellent. Um, uh, thanks. Um, yeah. So the, after the after the history, I wanted to put some context in for teachers because I think they're planted. They when you when you come into the profession, you need to know something of the history of the debates. So that was my first thing. Because uh, you need, otherwise it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. A lot of what people are saying doesn't make sense. But then my, my chapter after that was on classroom management. And it was only a chapter, so it's not like a book. Like, um, But uh, I just wanted to um, give some, some, going back to this idea, something practical, something useful, what do you do if? But Teach Like a Champion isn't just, as you say, it's not just about um, behavior management. That's actually quite a small part of the book. Um, at one point, um, and I was rereading, obviously preparing for this this podcast, and I was really taken by um, an anecdote where you discuss um, uh, an English romantic poetry class you took in college, um, and how you weren't initially interested. And I think there's a really important point that sits behind this. Um, I think there's a, a debate about how much we should seek to meet students where their interests currently lie, and how much we should seek to take them to some place else. Um, and I just wondered if, if you, what your thoughts on that are and, and, and if you could sort of place the context for that romantic poetry class. Sure. Um, well, for, I just, I think that uh, choice is, va is overvalorized by so many people. Like, cho choice is beneficial, choice in schools is great. I'm gonna, if you ask me, I'll make an argument for, you know, for choice in schools. But I think you know, the presumption that a 12 year old knows en enough about the world to be able to say, this is the book that I want to read and, that there and I only want to read books that I want to read is, um, 
it's such a profound disservice to the to the to the, 12, the, the, the presumption that um, he or she that there are no books out there that what an adult who loves a child does is put a book in his or her hands that changes his or her worldview in a way that they never expected to. I still remember I, I still remember reading The Old Man and the Sea for the first time, and I had told my parents I was a non-reader in middle school, and I told my parents I didn't like reading, and I wasn't you know and someone gave me this book and it, I never would have chosen this book for myself. And it just profoundly opened a new world for me. So I think that's, you know, that's what education is supposed to do for you is broaden broad your horizons and tell you about the things that you don't know that are out there as opposed to presume that at the age of 12 or 14 or 16, you are in a position sufficient to decide what's worth studying and what's worth, what's not. And that, you know, I guess the sort of mildly more grown up version of that is I came back from study abroad my junior year in college I was going to be an English major the only English course available was British romantic poets and the only the only thing I knew about British romantic poets was that they had the word romantic in it and I was like that is not you know that is not for me yeah um it does not you know jive with my vision of myself uh but I took it and the professor was uh professor Pat O'Neill and she was uh uh she was incredibly brilliant and that uh you know like uh that semester of reading wordsworth and coleridge and keats and shelley and byer like i will never forget it um what's your um take so talking about continuing the discussion about english uh, particularly because i find this interesting that there are competing ways that people sort of conceptualize this and we've had um Certainly coming out of the UK in recent times, people have reflected on the work of people like um, Dan Willingham and Edith mm -hmm. Hirsch, and they've started to talk about building a knowledge-rich curriculum. And in the context of English, um, uh, I think you call it English language arts in the US, but um, we just call it English in Australia. Um, and bless you for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what's your, do your take on that debate? Like the, the, the balance yeah. between generic skills versus specific sort of learning specific knowledge and and has your view on that changed over time yeah i think it might be the single area where my view has changed where i've learned the most in uh in in my career in education to the point that um, my colleagues and i are now actually writing we're writing a curriculum a middle grade english curriculum uh that is knowledge driven because for a long time i believe the beautiful myth <laughs> that of transferable skills the idea that like if we could just teach students higher order thinking skills, they would be able to apply them in any setting. Uh, and it, it is such a beautiful, beautiful vision. Yeah. But it's a myth. Yeah. And, um, and one of the, so like one of the, there are so many key moments in this, this journey for me. Um, but one of them was reading with my daughter. Uh, we were reading, I don't know if you know the book, little, the little house on the prairie series, but it's sort of iconic in, yeah. uh, uh, in the U S you know, they're a series of, uh, of, fictionalized memoirs set on the American prairie in the late 1800s. And um, I'm tucked in with my littlest daughter who loves reading. And she is a really, uh, she's a really insightful kid and she understands people's motivations. And we read this sentence that said, um, on a Wednesday, Ma boiled water for the bath, for the, uh, for us to take baths. Yep. Uh, and I knew that this sentence was supposed to tell you that something really unusual and exciting was supposed to happen. Yeah. Because 
Well, and so, uh, and so I asked my daughter about it and she had no idea. Uh, and the reason I knew that is because I have background knowledge and I knew that on the prairie in the 1800s, people took baths once a week on Saturday in anticipation for church on Sunday because taking a bath meant lugging water up uh, you know, from the creek and heating yeah. it over the stove and you'd even take a tub on Wednesday. And so she was unable to draw the inference from this passage and no amount of doing the things that teachers did and inferences combining what you know with, you know, filling in the blanks in the text, combining <laughs> what you know with the hints from the text, like let's sing song that chant over and over again, or let's read Tuck Everlasting and let's practice making 30 different inferences from Tuck Everlasting. None of those were going to help her make the inference that she needed to make. It was inferences about background knowledge. And, uh, and, you know, this coalesced at the time I was reading a lot of the research on reading and it just, it, it uh, I, th I think the data is overwhelmingly clear that what we perceive to be skill problems are knowledge problems in reading. And this shows up in, to me, the, the most pervasive place with it where this shows up is that we insist on teaching vocabulary, which is the single most important form of background knowledge when you're talking about reading as a skill, as opposed to a form of knowledge. And by skill, I mean that we do things like we come across a word like, um, uh, mimic and we say does anyone know we first we try to make people guess does anyone know what mimic means who who knows you know and so then we waste some time there and then we say that's what's uh, in my head that, that's what Catherine right. and then we, yes exactly yeah. and then they say um can anyone tell from the context clues from the clues around it what the word mimic means and this is on the presumption that like if i can master this abstract skill of inferring word meaning from context clues i will be able to infer the meaning of any word in any text and i will have this beautiful skill for the rest of my life but of course, as Isabel Beck points out in her brilliant, brilliant book, Bringing Words to Life, if there's yeah. one book you want to read on vocabulary, that is the one. Yeah. Most context clues are either non-directive or misdirective. Um, either they give you no information or they would, in, in, they would encourage you to think of the word as meaning something different from what it does. And in fact, vocabulary is most important, most critical in the sentence when it resets the meaning of the sentence. In other words, when it happens, when it works in contrast to the context clues around it yeah. and so um but we said this is how you know this is how vocabulary is taught in 90 percent of schools in the country it would be so much smarter just to say um to provide a definition and then like let's play with the word and let's let me give you some examples and see if you can use it and uh in other words making the definition the starting point as opposed to the ending point of the of the purpose of vocabulary study so, um, you know, just over, over the course of the years, I think I've overwhelmingly come to recognize that reading is a knowledge-driven endeavor yeah. and that we're absolutely, absolutely doing it wrong. Even people who, I go to schools and they say, yeah, we've read all the research on knowledge, background knowledge and reading. We believe in reading. You go to their, their classrooms and they're still teaching main idea and they're still teaching inference as a skill. And they, um, it's a very hard habit to get out of. In part, sorry, I'll just make, I, I'm, um, in, at risk of rambling here, no, no, but no, apart no. from one, one other valid reason, which is, you know, data has changed, being data-driven has changed what's happened in teaching in a lot of productive ways. And so people want to use the skills that they've developed, but the use of data can lead you astray because the most easy way to organize reading question, read, reading data is by the question and then to categorize questions by the skill that they're asking you. And then the next step from there is to say, okay, now how do we reattack, how do we attack this skill differently? Um, and so, you know, our best intentions and some of the best things that we have lead us astray on, on reading it. 
It works beautifully with maths, um, yes. I find. Profoundly, um, yeah. Uh, as a maths teacher, because you, uh, w- there's not that, like, there are skills in maths, but they're not considered, they're not the sort of overarching generic ones that, that are conceptualised in English. So when you look at a question, you can say, oh, you need to know this, and you need to be able to do this, and, and it's, it's quite, it works quite well. But um, yeah. you're right, if you take scores on a, re- like a reading comprehension assessment, there's so many things that are fed into that. It's impossible to sort of vocabulary, fluency, decoding, yeah. background, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it, there's no, there's no simple algorithm like there is, and or no direct correlation between between skill and between problem and remediation like there is in maths. But reading is really important. Like uh, in your um, book with um, Colleen Driggs and Erica Woolway, reading reconsidered. Uh, you write um, with you like this quite passionate bit of the introduction where you talk about reading being first amongst equals in the subjects taught at school, um, because it kind of unlocks um, the others. Could you expand on that a little bit? The farther you go in your discipline, the more critical your ability to read the literature of the discipline is, and to be able to struggle above your comfort level in that discipline in order to be able to reach a professional level. Uh, and so while everything we teach in school is important, um, my ability to read, you know, if I want to do behavioral economics, if I want to be, you know, no matter what I want to do, my ability to read complex texts is going to be at volume, by the way, is going to be one of the drivers. And I just like this, uh, one more sort of personal experience from my, what we would call college days, you would call university days is, I had this dream that I was going to be, I was not a particularly good science student in high school, but I had this dream that I was going to go to college and become a doctor. And I took introductory biology and they sent us to the biology library to read a bunch of uh, scientific studies. And I couldn't make heads or tails of um, any of them. I couldn't read the literature of the discipline and I dropped the class. And um, as far as Dr. Lamov, the rest, the rest <laughs> is history. Um, that's quite, you know, that's quite true. Uh, I, um, you have to be able to read disciplinary literature, you know, disciplinary topics if you want to become a professional at something. And um, obviously uh, in my last podcast, I had a, a chat with um, Emily Hanford and um, not partly, yeah, mainly as a result of her journalism uh, I think the the debate about reading instruction in the US has been kind of reignited. Now, it, that's important in Australia, actually, because mm-hmm. we take a lot of our cues from the US when it comes to uh, things like early reading instruction. So programs... So sorry to hear it. <laughs> so programs that are popular in the US, balanced literacy programs, the big commercial ones, are quite popular here. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I just wondered what, what your take was on... on um, Hanford's journalism and and then the state of the debate about early reading instruction, decoding instruction and things like that uh, now. I'll probably give you a pretty brief answer, which is I think her journalism has been tremendous and profound and has uh, forced a conversation about being empirical and data-driven and and factual about what causes, what beyond good intentions uh, and personal narrative (laughs) causes great reading. and I think there, you know, there are other people doing great research out there as well. Uh, and it's, re- it's really, it's, it's an equity issue, and it's a quality issue, and it's, it's urgent. Um, and so I'm really glad that she and other people have, have 
brought this debate to the forefront. I'm not, a, I'm not an expert in early reading, so I, I feel like, you know, like I'll, she, she should comment or you, know, you and she should comment on her, on, on, on her work and the details of it, but I, I, I find it really, really important. Do you think she's cutting through with the public? Like, obviously, it's big on Twitter whenever she releases a, an AMP report, but do you think that's cutting through, like, with parents who might then go into school and ask questions, or would you not know, or...? <laughs> It's hard to say. I mean, I think in some small sectors, yes. Um, but I think that there are, um, there are a lot of parents for whom the details of whether their child learns to read are, um, there are a lot of luxuries of caste in the US. You know, like you grew up in privilege, Things happen pretty. Things happen pretty happily for you. You don't see the need for things to happen in a more intentional, methodical way for people who are not as fortunate. Uh, you go to schools that have a lot of uh, prestige and they are asking totally irrelevant questions to the struggle to the struggle of the great majority. And those schools are highly influential and uh, and shape the practice of other schools and. Um, what is invisible to you are this, you know. Uh, as a person who's fortunate are critical elements of the struggle to those who are not, you know, not so privileged. That's an interesting point. Um, like, so I, I research um, for my PhD that I'm doing, I'm, I'm, it's in the area of cognitive load theory. And one of the predictions of, of that is that um, things like um, very open pedagogy, you know, inquiry learning, mm -hmm. that sort of stuff, um, they're not as effective as uh, explicit teaching. Okay, so this is the headline thing that I, I tend to bank on about. But it's different. It's a differential effect. So um, the more background knowledge you have, the more um, resources you have to bring to bear, um, the the less damaging, if you like, uh, in practices like that are. So um, very um, uh exclusive independent schools. We have a lot of those in, in Australia. Uh, I work in an independent school. We're a bit unusual in the way that we go about things. M many uh, independent schools in Australia are all about, uh, you know, um, uh, well-being and sports. And, and of course, like luxury those, goods, those are important for us, but yeah. that's their sort of, that's their main pitch. Um, sure. And uh, they can get away with- They're selling, they're selling lifestyle. Yeah. And luxury goods and luxury goods and from an economic can, standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. And they can get away with um, uh, these these sort of practices like inquiry learning or whatever, because uh, they've got mitigation processes that the parents can get tutors. Got, there's lots of things that they can do. And also the kids are coming in with more resources anyway. So they, they, they still can probably learn quite well, even though it's not maybe optimal. Um, but then if you then- vacations on the Great Barrier Reef, yeah. those kind of things, you know, like a lot of background knowledge kind of like that. Absolutely. But then you transplant that um, to a school where kids don't have those resources and there's no one there to sort of catch them or notice necessarily if, if, they're, if they're not making progress and, and it's, it's not as effective. Um, and that's why um, we, we need um, really practical, and, and this, is, this is the thing that, I think we lack in education a little bit. Now, I've been banging on about this 
um, recently on my blog, we, we, we lack practical suggestions uh, of what to do. Um, and it's all a bit vague and woolly because that sounds more important to talk in the abstract. It sounds like you're being more profound. But what we actually yes. need are very practical guides to this is more effective than this. This is what the data shows in this situation. Um, and it's not gold standard necessarily, but we know that this, this practice is associated with slightly better performance. And we need to build those together and have a more technical approach to uh, teaching than perhaps yeah. we do at the moment. And I, I see that that's, that's why Teach Like a Champion is um, such an important text really, because it's one of the few it, perhaps it shouldn't be as important as it is because perhaps there should be lots of alternatives yeah. giving practical tips um just on that before we we move on from teach like a champion um some people on twitter have uh, used the word carceral uh, to describe teach like a champion which i think means something to do with prisons um and this is unfortunately for you this seems to have led to some social media mob behavior which is pretty ugly um uh, when you see it uh, unfortunately, it's the times we live in and the way that people behave on Twitter. But just setting that aside, do you understand? I don't. I'm not even sure I really understand why, why, what, what this means and how it, how Teach Like a Champion could be carceral. But do do you understand what even what the criticism is? And and if you do or if you don't, how do you respond to that? Uh, well. I you know, there's a lot of talk about the school to prison pipeline in this country. Yeah. I assume that this is what it's about. And the notion that when children fail in school, it increases their likelihood of incarceration. Okay. So how do I respond to that, that word in particular? So the first thing I would say is that unequal and systematically uh, racist or, or schools that systematically are biased against poor and minority children, uh, that's been an open secret to anyone who's been paying attention in our society for decades. Um, ironically, only lately have we begun making progress in creating alternatives, i.e. schools that achieve dramatically, radically better outcomes for kids who are born on the wrong side of the opportunity gap. And those, like, I will be the first to say those alternatives, the schools that have been created are imperfect at best, but they're highly successful. And running them involves doing many things better. Curriculum is a great example. Um, but among those things that those schools do is the realization that teachers must have the ability to protect students' right to learn in an orderly and productive learning environment. And no wealthy progressive would consider sending their own child to a school where teachers couldn't do that even for a second. Um, so again, if you look at the results, they are unequivocal about these schools, you know, um, students achieving at five and six times the rates of the schools that they're coming from 100% of students going on to university from neighborhoods where 3% of kids go on to university. So I think it's ironic that people seek to dismantle the single best option uh, that's available to students of poverty in the name of equity. Uh, I find that uh, Orwell himself would struggle to invent something uh, better. Um, and I think it's also ironic that uh, these, are, these are options for the most, in most cases, they're schools of choice, they're charter schools. And so the families that have their children there overwhelmingly support and continue to enroll their children uh, in those schools, which um, 
I just find that a deeply ironic equity argument, which is uh, I, don't, I don't trust the decisions of poor minority families and <laughs> I don't trust them to know what's best for their own children. I would also say that like, I think for a certain number of people offered the choice between making a political statement that they believe will exonerate them from complicity in the system, the terrible inequitable system that we have that exists on the one hand and doing the really hard thankful work that actually changes outcomes for families who are cut off from opportunity and, and are, are in that system where your likelihood of failure is high, you know, uh, most people will choose the first. They would choose, they choose to exonerate themselves by shouting about equity rather than rolling up their sleeves and running great schools and running great classrooms. They're, they're talking, talking the talk rather than walking the walk. Well, it's a lot safer to do that. Isn't yeah. It? Uh, and, uh, and, um, it's a lot safer and it makes you feel a lot better. Cause let me tell you, if running schools that change the equation of opportunity for poor kids were easy, a lot more people would do it than do, but you see precious few of them in this country. And I just like, if, if you're out there using the word carceral, like, uh, great time for you to take everything you know about education and go to work in some uh, ill-served community, teaching math uh, in, to children there, and you should videotape yourself. And when you do tremendously better, I will be the first person to trumpet your success and show your video on my blog. Absolutely. And, and you, you touch on a few points there. You remind me of, um, you know, the, this paternalism. We, we know better than um, the parents um, what their kids need. So we, us uh, white, well-educated liberals, we know better um, for, for your children than you do. And it reminds me of um, uh, Catherine Belbel Singh talking about trying to set up Michaela in London and she would try and have a meeting for parents and the parents couldn't get in the meeting because there's all these middle-class protesters outside um, calling her a Tory teacher, Tory conservative uh, yeah. in the UK and all this sort of stuff. So... And, and you, what you've done there as well, and I, I hadn't really thought about this, I, I suppose it makes sense. You're linking the criticism of Teach Like a Champion to the um, issue of charter schools um, and, and suggesting that the, that may be where some of this is coming from. Um, and of course, when, when you talk about that, that makes a lot of sense because um, the, the US election, um, for instance, which is, coming up and well it's a, it's a an, an amazing thing that I'm sure people will look back on um the history of that and and the debates and COVID and I mean it's just an extraordinary year but um amazing is amazing is not the word I would use to describe the American no. <laughs> well, it's, but okay well everything's <laughs> just extraordinary isn't it like yeah. uh, it, you couldn't if someone had written in 2015 yeah. yeah a novel uh, called 2020 yeah. and they put all of this in it like, ugh, like, you wouldn't have believed it. You said that it's not credible. But anyway, we've got this, this US election is coming up with the two oldest candidates ever or something, isn't it? And then, um, but one issue that's not really, I don't know, and obviously I'm in Australia, so I, I, maybe it's cutting through more in, in the US, but certainly when, when I've, I've seen, I've, I saw the first debate and I've read various um, articles about the, the election. Um, the issue of charter schools isn't really, from my perspective, a very prominent one. And yet I know that um, quite a few Democrats um, 
have expressed reservations about charter schools, have expressed concerns about charter schools, um, which is unusual because it used to be quite a bipartisan um, mm-hmm. position charter schools and Democrats were involved in setting up some of the first charter schools and as I understand it. So President Obama was the was one of the leading advocates. Absolutely, because presumably they could see the impact on equity um, that the mm-hmm. charter schools would have. So just you know uh, imagine there's a, a Democrat who hasn't necessarily uh, read all, up all on uh, education, mm-hmm. he's more maybe interested in foreign policy or something, and he's standing as a candidate, and they've sort of automatically taken the anti-charge schools position because, um, you know, that, that's just, that they've just sort of, in, in, that's infused in them mm-hmm. from the surroundings. What would be your kind of elevator pitch, your case for uh, charter schools? How would you explain to them the, the importance of that issue? Yeah, quality, equity, and choice, I think, are the three words that would come up for me. Uh, quality is just a, um, the successful parts of the charter school sector uh, have overwhelmingly, massively better results for students of need in communities that are poorly served by public schools. I mean, we're talking about, you know, like those are, are um, study uh uh, sponsored by uh, uh, a group at Stanford University that found you know, three years in an uncommon school, for example, you know, was significant was was sufficient to uh, eliminate the achievement gap between students of wealth and uh, and students of poverty. Uh, the <laughs> there was it, the results are overwhelmingly better in charter schools, and so that's one thing. So great great schools are a moral imperative. Uh, and especially the equity issue when they serve families who don't have access to opportunity and whose children don't have, whose children risk being cut off from meritocracy, meritocracy and opportunity in this country. And the third thing that I would say is that, you know, and this, this is the part of the argument that has changed the most and maybe I think most differently about in the last year or two, which is just choice, which is there are different visions of school. I believe strongly that it is the job of a school to protect the learning environment of a student. Let's imagine a student and let's call her Asha and she's in a science classroom. She's a high school student and she has just raised her hand for the first time this year because suddenly she's had a thought about the role of spindle fibers in spell and cell replication. And suddenly she like, she thinks, wow, this is, interesting to me. I have, a, I have a comment. I want to, I want to ask the teacher something about this. And she raises her hand and the teacher calls on her. And there are a couple of ways that this can go. Um, she could raise her hand and everyone could look at her and nod and give her silence. And after she asks her question, the teacher could respond or students could respond to her and say, that was really valid. That was interesting. And maybe that's the first step on her way to university for her. Or she could make her statement into a vacuum, a room full of kids slouched in their chairs, looking out the window, looking at their phones, um, whose body language says, I don't care in the least what you're saying. And afterwards her question hangs in awkward silence or you know, kids snickering. Kids grow up in that, that latter school. And I just, they'd, nobody's child deserves to go to school in a culture that tolerates that and doesn't fight hard to defend Asha's right 
to not just not just the right to learn, but to be put into a culture that encourages learning and fosters it and draws it out. And so I, I, I personally believe that schools have an obligation to provide a structured, orderly, loving, supportive learning environment for students. Not everybody sees it that way. There are, I mean, the belief that somehow you should sacrifice your personal beliefs for the greater good of the common group has, I mean, that conception was common in the US a generation ago and nobody believes it now, you know. Um, uh, people are not going to, you know, there are lots of people who don't want their child to be told what to do. Uh, and so I guess I, I respect that right, but I don't want to give up my right to have great schools for kids who deserve it. And so I, I, just, I, just, I just wonder whether one vision of schooling is sustainable in our culture any longer, or whether choice is also about choosing the model and the approach. And like, if you think that it is, um, if you're a parent and you think that it is a transgression for an adult to tell your child what to do, um, I don't agree with you. But I don't want to try and tell you, I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong about your child. You should be able to send your child to a school that won't tell your child what to do. And I hope things work out. And for adults who see it as a gift for someone to tell their child what to do and to set high expectations for them, they deserve to be able to send their child to a school where adults do that lovingly and supportively and create educational opportunities for them. And I just, you know, given the level of disagreement that we have in our country about the fundamentals of what it means to interact and be obligated to a group socially and what education should look like. But we could spend a lot of time, a lot less time shouting at each other and a lot more time doing productive things if we embraced more choice, allowed people to build models of schools that people bought into and, you know, and secret extra bonus. Like one of the secret stories of schools in the U.S. is that very few schools can even pursue an idea with fealty. Um, because for the most part, if I say, look, I want to have a school that we're, we're going to write at the end of every lesson because writing is really important. I have a math teacher who can say, I'm not really into that writing thing and just doesn't do it. And so we can't really ever find out what, what ideas work and what don't. But if we had schools of choice where not only were parents choosing, but teachers were choosing and we were choosing operant philosophies, we could actually explore them, implement them well and find out what works for whom, when a lot better than we do. And so I think the quality and the equity arguments have existed for a long time. And I just see like the, the necessity of choice for other reasons becoming um, equally critical in an argument for charter schools. And that was a really long elevator ride no. for whoever got stuck with me. <laughs> no, that was good. Look, I think that it's the third point choice that's shifted my, um, my view on this. So I used to uh, be against, uh, when I first started blogging, against charter schools and um, and um, the free schools and things that they have in the UK um, because I thought they were a distraction, that structural change was a distraction. Then instead of putting our energy into that, we should just improve the schools that we've already got. But the problem is you do have these competing visions and they um, are fundamental and they're not necessarily like the, to an extent they're moral positions. And the only way you can reconcile that is by allowing the different models to um, and so in the in the UK you've got Michaela in West London, and then you've got um, school. Is it called School Twenty One, which uses a kind of project based learning approach, yeah. which yeah. is another free school. So you, you you've got the you're trying out the different options. I suspect though 
that some of the more vocal critics of um, charter schools, if given the choice, the option to open a school of the kind that they would like to see, um, I, I'm wondering whether that might all be all too hard uh, and it's actually better to uh, criticise what's there rather than go and build something else. I don't know. We'd have to see, wouldn't we? Uh, but just Possible on, that you're onto something. <laughs> but just on that, so... Um, just still just rounding off on charter schools since the the killing of um george floyd by a, a police officer earlier this year um the black lives matter movement has gained extraordinary momentum uh there's been responses across american society from colleges to corporations and the, there have been responses from charter schools in your view what what's the right response from charter schools the charter school sector to to yeah. that sort of issue I'm not sure there is one response. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think one of the one of the things that schools should be is responsive to their communities and to the things that their parents want and need from them. And so I think, you know, I think there are a range of responsible, responsive uh, reactions from a school. But the one thing, you know, the one thing that I personally believe is that um, the single thing that we control as educators that most serves to change the deep inequities, deep racial inequities in our society is the ability to run outstanding schools and create opportunity for students, every kind of opportunity for students. And that if the changes we're making to our schools erode our ability to do that, it's a loss in the long run. Uh, and so, um, Again, I think there are a variety of responses and it's important to be responsive and to let the communities that we serve know that we love them and we serve them. And that is what our schools are there for. But part for, for me, for me, at least in schools that I choose to associate with, part of that is and we will continue to, to build schools that do everything we possibly can to help your children accomplish their dreams. And let you know that when you child, you send your child to the school, they have the best possible chance of having their dreams accomplished. In the long run, if we want a more equitable, just society, we're gonna need people of all races and backwards, we're gonna need them to be doctors and we're gonna need them to be judges and we're gonna need them to be financiers and we're gonna need them to be artists. Like they're gonna to have to, we, we, want, we want people of all backgrounds to have access to all professions and Um, and school, schools have a big responsibility in ensuring that young people continue to have those options. And one of the difficulties we've had this year is to uh, try and maintain that uh, momentum and maintain those options for students in the background of with the with COVID um, and the uh, response that's happened in many places in the US, in Australia, of extended lockdowns of schools. And when COVID hit early this year, um, my boss gave my colleague, Laura Brady and me, the job of developing our school's remote learning program. Um, there was hardly any research to draw on, uh, but we did find your blog posts. And firstly, before I ask my question, I would like to say thank you for that on behalf of myself, Laura, and our whole school community. You gave us a language to discuss the issues, um, models to draw upon, videos to watch, points to consider in the decision-making process. And our response wasn't perfect, and it, but it was a lot better for um, 
your input um mm. so you might not even have been aware you. that you're inputting into it but thank you for that um uh, i appreciate your work there so my question is um how did that thinking arise and how were you so ahead of the game in starting to put stuff together on that i think that so i think one of the least talked about things is that the COVID crisis is it's the you know, you'd, you'd asked about equity issues. COVID is the single biggest equity issue in a generation for American students, right? The wealthy and privileged students, it's not gonna be great for them, but they're gonna find solutions they already are. They're gonna be in learning pods and they're gonna be, there's gonna be lots of compensation and there are thousands and thousands and thousands of kids sitting home right now, taking care of their younger siblings that are supposed to be logged into online classes that are either they're not logged in or when they get there, they're barely there and the screen, the screen isn't on, no one sees them and no one, care, no one cares about them. And it's, um, it's the, <laughs> these six weeks and how we respond to learning how to teach online are the equity, are the, are the biggest equity issue in, in years. And I'm just not sure that enough people see it that way. Um, and I guess that this was like profoundly important to my staff and I right away. But you know, when I came home from a trip to Denver on March 13th and suddenly realized that we weren't gonna be working in classrooms for a while. Um, but I think that what my team and I do is study teachers. We love the craft of teaching. And so we just started five days a week studying every bit of footage we could get our hands on of what teachers were doing online. Fast forward six or seven months later and you know, a, uh, an organization that we work with asked us to do a series of workshops for teachers in New York City. And this is in August and September. And the teachers, you know, they, they did the workshop and they were so great. I mean, the workshop was good. I wouldn't say it was great, but it was the first time that they had seen video of teacher, of other teachers teaching online. This is like, they had it all summer to train their teachers to show that like, this is what it looks like. This is the vocabulary to describe the choices that you make. Here's how to engage students in a lesson so it feels vibrant to them. And none of that None of that had happened. Um, so I guess we just, you know, maybe we were lucky to see that, <laughs> to see that earlier, just to realize that our skill was in studying in studying teaching and that the job of teaching had changed and that people were gonna need that help immensely. And so we had to just, you know, I remember just the feeling like we had to get going as fast as we could, but we went to, we usually study video two or three days a week on my team. We went to five days a week because we were just like, people are gonna be in, it's going to be so hard for teachers and so hard for kids and people are going to be in crisis and we have to learn everything we can. And then we'll figure out if we can make it useful to people. So I'm it's, glad to know it was useful to you. Uh, it was. I, like the, the, it's, it was, it's, was really interesting for me because we had to suddenly lurch into this different uh, way of doing things. I found initially we didn't even have the language. So you'd spend, yeah. you'd spend ages trying to describe a thing, yeah. but, but you had to do that. And then you come along, we read your blog. Oh yeah, that's, synchronous and that's yeah. asynchronous but we've been trying to talk about that like yeah. with lots and lots of words to try and describe that thing and we were now we were now given a language that we could talk about and it, it illustrated like on the sort of abstract level the importance of uh, language and, and the labels that we assign to things and the fact that quite a, a complex set of interlocking ideas once you give them a label you can deal with them as a I suppose schema theory they become a schema long-term memory and you can then deploy all of that 
um, as one sort of element of your thinking, and then you yeah. can move it around. And it was that lurch into completely new territory that made me realize, because most of the time, of course, we suffer from the, the curse of knowledge. We, we don't know that yeah. we know all these things and that we have all these labels like that democracy, what, you know, that one word, which brings something to mind, means thousands of lots of interlocking different bits that if you didn't have the label and you had to try and describe it, would be quite complicated. And yeah. so um, actually providing us with that language to talk about this new thing, this remote learning, um, that, that, was, that was a key thing. Yeah, thank you. I think, I think vocabulary is profoundly underrated. Uh, and you really can't conceive of something without a word for it. And you certainly can't conceive of it and communicate it and discuss it reliably with someone else. That was a lot of what I think I was trying to do in Teach Like a Champion was just give words to the decision, yeah. phrases to the decisions that teacher, teachers make in the course of a lesson so that they could talk about them. Even if you didn't agree with anything that I said in the book, if you had a if you use the terms, the vocabulary, you could then talk about how you saw it differently with other people and have a much more efficient conversation. Uh, and so, yeah, I, th I think that was right away we set out to like, let's try and develop a vocabulary for talking about online learning because we're all going to, it's going to accelerate all of our conversations and lock them down into reality and clarity. And, uh, and I just think that that's hugely, education is cursed with, with nebulous terminology, yeah. you know, the term scaffolding, I think is a great example. Oh, yeah. if you take 15 different <laughs> teachers and they mean, they mean 15 different things by the term scaffolding. And so like, um, oh, I see that you were scaffolding there, uh, yeah. gets you almost nowhere in a conversation yeah. with, with other teachers. Yeah, differentiation is another one because sure. it, it can even mean opposite things. Um, yeah. so in terms of um, remote learning, what, what, what are the biggest things that you've learned out of the process? Mm -hmm. I think that um, schools online or in person are first and foremost cultures yeah. and they communicate to people a sense of belonging, a sense of purposeness and a sense of what's going to happen. And so the first thing I think is that an online classroom has to, has to adapt or replicate that culture, that culture. And so like one of the things that happens, I think when any group of people online is there's a norm of passivity, you know, what do adults do when they get online with a group of other adults? We all turn off our cameras. If we can and then if we have to turn on our cameras we turn on our cameras but we 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 hope to get through the meeting without saying anything <laughs> and you're not going to be able to learn much if you're a student if that's your if that's what you're trying to do during class you're trying yeah. to keep your camera off and trying to hide and then trying to say nothing and so like one of the things that we just um think is really important for teachers to socialize students to to for agency right away that if it's a synchronous lesson we say like within the first three minutes, kids should be actively doing something where everyone answers a question and everyone can see everyone else answer the question. So our, our like little recipe for an opener is ask a really engaging question within two minutes at the start of class, ask everyone to answer an answer into the chat. Once people start answering the chat, yes, every kid can see that every other kid has answered in the chat. Then you do what we call chat appreciative cold call, which is you call out two or three answers that are, that are smart and you say, oh, it's so interesting. Greg, you use the word alleles to describe uh, what's happening in the diagram. So insightful. Tell us more about that, right? And so you cold call people by honoring them for their thinking. And if you do this a couple of times, then all of a sudden you've kind of broken the norm of passivity and people will participate. As opposed to if you ask the same question at the beginning of class and just said, would anyone, anyone like to make an observation about the diagram? You'd get crickets. Yeah. Uh, so I think that sort of culture building is critical and, um, 
and I think that, I think that's one really critical thing. And the other thing that I, I think is um, online learning maximizes the struggle for att attention and focus, which is the case in, in any classroom. You know, what you pay attention to is what you learn about. But when we're online, we're in an environment where we are prone, socialized for expect to be distracted. And so helping to harvest and maintain focus is, is really important. Um, one thing that we love to do is just to socialize people that you know, students should always have pencil and paper next to their laptop so that you can tell them like, take one minute, glance away from the screen and write a response, how's Jonas changing in this chapter or solve these three problems. Or even here's a problem set, leave your camera on, but take 10 minutes to solve the problem set. And then with the camera on, I can build this loving safety net. We call this semi-synchronous, by the way. It's sort of halfway between synchronous. And it's yeah. doing asynchronous work with your camera on. Um, and I can do things like say, great SEO, working so hard, keep at it. If you have any questions, make sure to chat me. Do you need more time? Just give me a quick thumbs up if you're doing okay. So I can build this sort of like loving safety net that also tacitly stresses accountability and appreciation for when you work hard, I see you but that can also let kids be in states of concentration where they're not staring at a screen, um, you know, all class long for five, six, seven classes in a row. I don't think we, anyone wants to see our kids come stumbling out of their, you know, their room after a school day where they've been on zoom for six hours straight. Um, you know, that's just brutal. Absolutely. Well, even you know, I'm, I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking about my own. So we just, um, We've just finished. So our kids um, on Monday are going back to live teaching. So we've had a bit of a, we've had a second lockdown in Victoria. Uh, we haven't got any virus in regional Victoria, but we're kind of, um, we're being delayed by um, Melbourne, the big city before we can, but we, we've, we've come out of uh, the remote learning. So I taught my last remote learning lesson, hopefully for some time yesterday. Uh, and I'll be seeing them live again on Monday. And we were all so happy when I was saying to them, and I will see you live. And wait, to, and wait, till, wait till you, I, I think, like, wait till you walk into that classroom yeah. and wait till the kids walk into the classroom and they realize how profound an influence the culture of being together is. I, I do hope that one of the outcomes of this is that we will be recommitted to the, the power and importance of classroom culture by being away from it. Yeah and realize how important it is to build it intentionally and construct it and, you know, and that what teachers ask students to do in a great classroom is, it's unnatural. Okay. <laughs> Left to their own devices, people do not do the educationally uh, and culturally optimal thing. And so teachers have to engineer an environment that is loving and supportive and tolerates risk-taking and makes people feel safe uh, and is inclusive to everyone. It takes, a, it takes a lot of work. Sometimes people, criticize that work and yeah. because it's such hard work, criticize the need to do the work. Why do you need to end Why do you need to shape students' behavior? And, yeah. uh, and the reason is because it's a, that's an act of love. And I just hope that when we get back to classrooms and we all walk in again and we see our children's faces and they see ours, we realize what a, what a precious place that is. And that, you know, we can never be negligent or remiss about building the cultures that exist there again. Absolutely. Uh, look, final question. Um, so uh, uh, this is where I, I get you to solve, solve all our problems, Doug. So it, 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 <laughs> it's my view that uh, there is a generally hostile um, attitude to explicit teaching and particularly, and you've sort of alluded to it, explicit teaching of behavior. Well, you've, I haven't alluded to it. You've said um, some people look uh, at it as, well, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to explicitly teach these things? 
Um, uh, among college professors, often who uh, have responsibility for training new teachers. So new teachers come and I interview new teachers they, and, we, like, and they come with these ideas that explicit teaching is wrong, explicit teaching of academic content is wrong, uh, explicit teaching of behaviours is something they're probably just not even contemplated, um, right. not, not even to know that it's wrong. Um, uh, so, uh, and a lot of this is informed by um, things like Paolo Freire's critical pedagogy, which is very big in the academy, you know. The, yeah. I think this is a problem, um, without wanting to sort of go into the merits of Paolo Freire and all that. I think it's a problem in terms of the teachers being practically equipped when they land in the classroom. Um, yeah. Do you agree it's a problem? And if so, what's the solution? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I absolutely agree that it's a problem. Uh, I think one solution is uh, being able to measure things is often the first step to being able to change them. And so the first thing I, would, I just think that like schools of education should be accountable for the, uh, for the effects of the students that they educate. Combination, like, uh, you know, combination of factors we should look at. How well do their students learn? Uh, how successful do their principals say they are? How long do they persist in the field, right? People who fail, who are unprepared to walk into classrooms, uh, leave, or they migrate from challenging schools to easy schools because they are not, <laughs> because they're not able to handle the challenges of the challenging schools and they get paid more in an easy school to live in what, you know, to live a better, <laughs> live an easy, an easier existence. And so like, I think these are all things that um, we can start to measure and, uh, and hold schools of education, hold programs accountable for, or at least present them with data where they, uh, they have to confront the results of, of their work. I also think that, you know, cognitive science has learned more about, you mentioned cognitive load theory um, and you know, the importance of background knowledge. Cognitive science has more, learned more about the way that thinking and learning work in the last 20 years and they, did arguably in the last in the 300 before that, and that that information has been preciously slow to filter into um, the teaching of teachers. And so I think um, putting some moral imperative behind, you know, the, in order to get public support as a university, I should I should demonstrate that I am aware of and reacting to relevant research in the field of education. It's reckless not to be. Well, I, yeah, I, I agree. I also think that um, the charters and free schools are part of this um, solution too, because I think they provide this proof of principle that, other, you know, that is otherwise lacking. A, a school can be set up and work in a particular way and, 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 and be an example to others. I think that, that um, certainly that's um, been the case, I think, in the UK with some of the free schools. Um, and I, I understand it's the case with some of the charter schools in the US as well. So hopefully a combination of those things um, makes, will enable us to see some progress and trying to hope for like one uh, politician to change it all or, or something like that is not, is, is probably a bit too much. Look, Doug, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast today and, and sharing uh, those um, experiences and thoughts with us. Um, I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully at some point we can have, um, I can have you back on. That'd be great. I appreciate it. And, uh, and I, you know, I just, 
I've read your work for years and uh, had a deep appreciation for it. So it's good to have a chance to talk in person and, uh, and thank you for everything that you do. Thank you. Education. Thank you, Doug. Cheers. Excellent. Cheers. Thank you.